Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Armenia and Azerbaijan are at war. These two countries in the Caucasus region uh, of Central Europe are in the middle of a flare-up of a conflict over a region called Nagorno-Karabakh. At least 350 people are dead. That is likely a substantial undercount. The last time these two countries went to war over this territory, 30,000 people died. So this is a serious conflict. It is coming back to the fore of international politics again. And today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we are going to explain to you why this is happening, how we got to this point, and how it might end. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey, Thank you, Zach, but I will answer different questions that you ask me throughout this you will podcast. You will not answer different questions. You will do what I tell you. I rule worldly with an iron fist. And by rule worldly with an iron fist, I mean I talk too much and other people do the actual work. Uh, good morning, everybody. It may not be morning where you're listening. I don't know. But uh, we, were, we were up it late watching. It is our watching, morning. Yeah. It's our morning right now. And we were up late watching the U.S. vice presidential debate, which turned out to not have very much of relevance to foreign policy, international affairs. There was like a little bit, but not really. Uh, So uh, today we want to talk about Nagorno-Karabakh because this this conflict is is not very well known outside of the area, but it's also hugely important for for the region and for the potential to pull in two major powers uh, you may have heard of, Turkey, which has already intervened in the conflict, and Russia. So this is important. But before we get into that, I think it's really important to start with the basics. So, Alex, why don't you walk us through the sort of very, very, very 101 stuff about what we're talking about here? Yeah, I'm going to paint with with broad strokes a little bit here. So, Armenia and Azerbaijan, two countries in the Caucasus, are fighting over a territory of about 150,000 people, roughly the size of Delaware, called Nagorno-Karabakh. The reason that they're doing so is because there is a dispute that dates back to the Soviet times as to who is actually in control of this territory. And the reason this dispute exists is because Nagorno-Karabakh is governed and is mostly populated. I mean, almost everybody is ethnic Armenian. However, Nagorno-Karabakh is inside of and internationally recognized to be inside of Azerbaijan. And so they are fighting over who really is in control of this territory. 
Well, hold on. It's worth getting into this history a little bit more, I think, because this is uh, like the Israel-Palestine conflict to a degree, which is the the frame of reference I've been using to understand this. Uh, It is a conflict over who controls what territory and who gets to populate it uh, to a degree, but it's not a like... This isn't like a religious conflict in the same exact way that it's like biblical claims over land and claims to holy sites. It really is, it's to understand the driving forces here. It's important to look at this um, sort of early 20th century pre-Soviet and Soviet period that that Alex was just referencing, right? That is what created the the conditions for this conflict, right? So after World War I, uh, around that time, you had an attempt to unify the Caucasus region, there was a shared republic, which sounds somewhat strange, between Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan uh, that attempted to uh, restore its own, you know, basically to assert territorial sovereignty. There was some conflict inside of that based on nationalistic concerns. But you ended up getting Soviet control over the region. And the Soviets, uh, for reasons that are unclear, there is some dispute about this. But the idea was to... Uh, put this uh, ethnic Armenian enclave under Azerbaijani rule. Uh, why did they do that? It's it's actually not obvious, again, uh, but there I was talking to a historian friend yesterday who had looked at the documents, and there's nothing proving it, but the sort of best theory is that this was part of a Soviet effort to actually stoke conflicts, ethnic conflicts, between Armenians and Azerbaijanis, who are mostly Muslim and ethnic Turkish, and Armenians who are Christian on the whole, not entirely. But the idea was to, to to basically divide and conquer. If these people are angry at each other and making demands to the Soviet leadership, they are not actually fighting for secession, but rather fighting for scraps of control under the Soviet system. So what we see right now, right, is the outgrowth of what appears to have been a deliberate strategy by the Soviet leadership to stoke ethnic conflict as a means of asserting their own control over the region. So this all starts to break down in the 1980s uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which had basically imposed peace in this territory with an iron fist. Exactly. So as the Soviet Union begins to collapse in the late 1980s, uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh's regional parliament officially votes to become part of Armenia. Uh, Azerbaijan obviously isn't thrilled about this because they've had control of this territory for all this time. They basically try to suppress the separatist movement Armenia obviously backs the movement. This led to ethnic clashes. And then after Armenia and Azerbaijan both declare independence from Russia, a full-scale war. Uh, So the countries fought a bloody war over the region in the late 1980s and in the early 1990s. Uh, And then there was this ceasefire that happened in 1994 that Russia brokered. Uh, After that deal, this region, Gorno-Karabakh, basically remains part of Azerbaijan, but since then has been mostly governed by this separatist, self-declared republic run by ethnic Armenians and backed by the Armenian government. So it's been this kind of frozen conflict is how a lot of people talk about it, right? Where it had, it's had kind of flare-ups of violence to the point that there was, you know, as, as Zach and Alex mentioned, this, you know, horrifically bloody wars, but it's been kind of more or less frozen in this kind of rough status quo for a while now. And then we have this big, huge flare-up. So the the political backgrounds to this conflict, what's happening right now is somewhat interesting. The the, the two sides roughly are Armenia is a democratic political system uh, and Azerbaijan is a kind of 
one party authoritarian oil state uh where that that's the sort of source of its current wealth and actually significant military firepower recently is because it's been able to sell a lot of oil and, and get a lot of money to import weapons from places like Israel the they they both have different internal politics both of which push them to to be ready for a conflict in this particular point in time the current government of armenia uh so sort of left leaning government by internal standards uh but they the, the the conflict, that is to say, asserting control over Nagorno-Karabakh, is hugely popular and an issue that's widely owned by the right in Armenia. So you end up getting a situation where, where leftists, even, even a left government, needs to posture aggressively and commit to defending this territory because the nationalist impulse is extremely popular among Armenians. Then uh, on the Azerbaijani side, the current government is authoritarian, but it's also been facing a massive protest movement. So uh, the protests uh, were really threatening to the government's rule. And again, on that side too, there's huge popular support for asserting Azerbaijani control over Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, so this is this the sort of popular sentiment, the hardline nationalist popular sentiment on both sides has frustrated peace efforts over the course of this long interregnum between the last war and the current one. But the the Aliyev government, that is the Azerbaijani government, uh, has seen stoking conflict in this area as a way of neutralizing an anti-government protest movement. So when there was uh, an exchange of fire earlier this year, uh, over the summer, between the two sides, as often happens in situations like this, where you have two armed camps both claiming control over the same territory, it doesn't always escalate to war. But in this case, the reason, part of the reason that things have escalated is that both sides have very strong political incentives not to back down, given their own domestic political sort of precarious situations. And nobody has, has a good off-ramp for declaring peace, or it doesn't look like there hasn't been one so far earlier this year, which is why part of why the conflict has escalated. Let me add a, a bit more to what Zach just said, because I think it's important. So let's step back and think about the sort of strategic picture here. Because when Jen also said that, like, there's a sort of status quo happening, it's Armenia who likes the status quo. And the reason yeah. is Nagorno-Karabakh is run uh, by ethnic Armenians who are, again, even though they're in Azerbaijan, there are now actual, like, sort of connections to Armenia proper, and therefore they're fine with the situation. Plus, it's mountainous ground. Uh, that's actually really helpful. And surrounding areas are also controlled uh, mostly controlled by Armenia, and they, and it all sort of forms a little bit of a buffer, let's say, at least this is what Armenia would, would claim. It all serves as a buffer in case of an Azerbaijani uh, ground attack, right? So to, to thwart invasion. For Azerbaijan, this is also a pretty big deal. Now, again, part of it is they actually want like to control places within its legal borders, Nagorno-Karabakh being one. And also there's a huge internally displaced persons issue. So in the wars of 1991 and 1994, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were forced from their homes and are now in mainland Azerbaijan throughout the country, um, you know, still displaced. There are homes that had to be built to house these people. Um, and a lot of folks are still sort of struggling to get back on their feet. They left with the clothes on their back and the money in their pockets. And they took jobs in Baku, the capital, and elsewhere that you know, may have been below their skill level because they needed to perform, uh, they need to provide for their families. And so part of the pressure that Zach was describing is coming from internally displaced people telling them like, hey, I want to go home. You know, this is my home. I want to go back. And uh, you need to get rid of, um, or at least make it possible that I can go 
you know, back to where I where I came from. An interesting thing also just on the dynamics of this, uh, political dynamics of this, is believe it or not, Aliyev, who um, is the, you know, autocratic president of Azerbaijan, who is the son of the previous president. Interestingly, he's ar- arguably uh, the more moderate one in this country on Nagorno-Karabakh. There's actually a, a weak in opposition. In op- uh, it's weak, but this opposition actually wants like full, total control of Nagorno-Karabakh, where Aliyev has said, eh, I mean, yes, we still want it to be part of Azerbaijan, but like they can still have some sort of self-rule or whatever. So he's actually pushing back, um, in a sense, on that weak opposition. And in Armenia, this is just a, a long-standing issue to care about the region uh, because, of course, ethnic Armenians are there, and also for the safety of the country. They are Armenians are still scarred by the the genocide from the Ottoman Empire in the, in, um, in the early 1900s. They killed about 1.5 million Armenians, and so when I talk to Armenian government officials about this in, Ar- in Armenians uh, itself, they're saying, hey, any sort of attempt to come after Armenia um, or Nagorno-Karabakh by Azerbaijan backed by Turkey uh, reminds us of this, and we don't want to stop it again. I mean, I was specifically told, we're worried they may come all the way into Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, and try to kill us. And there are experts who say that there is no fight over this issue when there's like a transfer of, of, of civilian territories that doesn't lead to ethnic cleansing. So like, but I should finally note that Azerbaijan, too, um, remembers that war in the early 1990s in which, you know, they say hundreds died in Kojali, which is also a sort of, uh, it reminds that uh, about hundreds of people died as well. Um, and so it's a reminder that, like, this fight can get bad. And so when these flare-ups happen, uh, and they do, there is always this sort of overarching worry of it could get really bad and a bunch of people could die and so no one wants big war, but also they were they actually have these concerns that like if we give an inch on anything, it is bad for our politics, it is bad for our like status as a country, and it is just bad for our people in general. Let's talk about just quickly why things flared up and what actually happened. I, just to be clear, so you've got all the background here. Um, again, like we said, it's been kind of you know frozen in this kind of awkward, uncomfortable status quo since you know the '90s. So this latest conflict that erupted actually kind of goes back to mid-July. There was some kind of border fighting. Armenia killed seven Azerbaijani service members, including a a top popular army general. Um, And then, you know, Azerbaijan was pretty mad. And um, Aliyev, you know, basically vowed, you know, Armenia's political and military leadership will bear the entire responsibility for this provocation. Uh, and a little bit later, Turkey joins Azerbaijan. We're going to talk in a little bit in the second half about, you know, why, you know, who backs which side and why. Um, but just know kind of for right now, Turkey backs Azerbaijan pretty hardcore. So Turkey, you know, goes with Azerbaijan and does these kind of couple of weeks of military drills. Um, and, you know, yes, this was like a normal, you know, annual exercise that they do. But like all of these exercises, they're meant to send a very clear political military message, which is like, we could fight you. We are ready. We are powerful. And so, obviously, you know, Armenia was a little like, uh, okay, not great. Uh, and that's kind of the kind of background there that kind of set the stage here. But flash forward to September 27th, which is when this last round of fighting really kicked off kind of full throttle. It's not really clear, like, who attacked whom first. Uh, basically, both sides are accusing each other of of attacks, and it's not totally clear who started it, but at this point, it's kind of moot. So Armenia said Azerbaijan bombed military settlements in Nagorno-Karabakh, including the capital. 
Armenia's defense ministry then claims that it downed two Azerbaijani helicopters and three drones. Uh, Azerbaijan obviously gets mad uh, at that and says that it, you know, essentially launched a counteroffensive with tanks, planes, missiles, drones. So basically, you start having these kind of tit-for-tat attacks. Um, and they start attacking, like, civilian populations uh, and shelling, you know, cities, large cities, uh, and putting civilians in, like, direct danger. So historically, these kind of clashes have, you know, flared up and then lasted a few days and then kind of subsided uh, for various reasons. Again, like Alex said, nobody wants a huge war. But this time around, it doesn't seem like it's heading that way. And it looks like there are a lot of things in place and a lot of uh, dynamics in place this time around that suggest this could actually turn into a much bigger conflagration than this region is used to seeing. Yeah, part of it are the political dynamics domestically on both sides that, that I was talking about a bit ago. Um, and, and part of it is what Alex just mentioned um, before Jen was talking about the the existential stakes of the conflict, right? So think about the fact that there are one million, uh, roughly, Azerbaijani internally displaced persons uh, as a result of the last conflict, right? And those people, as they want to go back to their houses, right? Well, there are Armenians in those houses right now, or ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh and in those places. So by necessity, to repatriate some of these people uh, from the Azerbaijani point of view, you're going to need to push out Armenians, which is to say conduct a a form of ethnic cleansing, um, if you want to put them back in their old houses, which is what many of them might want. Now, obviously, that's not the only possible solution, but the point is that since not only has historically there been a lot of ethnic cleansing when territory is taken by one side and the other, but it also is is an, a, like a cruelly rational way of each side accomplishing their goals, which is to say to assert control over the territorial region. If you populate the region with your people who are loyal to your government on the basis of ethno-national connections, then it would, you'll have an easier time governing it. It would make a lot of sense from your point of view to be able to assert that kind of control. So both sides know that the other side has an incentive to do some really horrible stuff to their people and the people they want to defend. Uh, There's already been, as Jen mentioned, attacks on civilians. Uh, So both sides have an incentive to to basically go all out to try to defend and seize this territory. And it's, it's like a really tricky situation thinking about it normatively, right? Because you're not... I mean, Armenia took this territory in a war. It is understood to be part of Azerbaijan by pretty much the entire international community as it was recognized after, you know, after the breakup of the Soviet Union. But it is 90% ethnic Armenian at this point, uh, according to most estimates, which means that if Azerbaijan were to take control, all of a sudden there's about 150,000 people uh, who are ethnic Armenian and are in serious danger from the Azerbaijani government. So it's a really, really, really high-stakes conflict for these two sides, and it's it's difficult to make claims about who's in the right because they both have credible arguments as to why they should get to administer or control the territory. Right. So you're absolutely right. But I think, you know, again, even that, right, like those dynamics have existed for a while. That's not new. You know, this this threat has been there. But what has kind of changed— beyond just the thing, you know, that fighting is a lot worse this time around, is the the international, the regional geopolitical situation uh, is now causing 
kind of even more reasons uh, for both sides to be kind of all in this time around. And that's what I think is is really important to understand why things could get a lot worse, is that a lot of stuff outside has changed. So that's what we're going to talk about uh, after the break. Listen to our ads, people. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the renewed fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the region of Nagorno-Karabakh, which was a conflict most people maybe weren't paying attention to until it erupted into serious violence this year and has the potential to get a lot worse. Uh, one thing that we hadn't talked about that Jen was was getting into right before the break are the international dynamics of this conflict. Because uh, it's not just Armenia and Azerbaijan that are important parties here. There are two really, really significant regional and world powers that have major stakes here. That's Turkey and Russia. Uh, so why don't, why don't we start with Turkey? Because Turkey has actively intervened on the Azerbaijani side in the conflict already, sending a thousand Syrian fighters, for example, to, to support the Azerbaijanis and, and providing them with other forms of assistance. Uh, Jen, what is Turkey's role here? Like, What are they thinking? Why are they doing this? What's going on? Right. So so Turkey has like longstanding ties to Azerbaijan, just ethnically, religiously, culturally, linguistically, uh, you know, a lot in common as kind of a Turkic people. Um, and, you know, so they've had these ties for a very long time. That That's not new. Um, and, you know, like I said before the break, they also have done regular military drills with Azerbaijan, right? So they, it's not just like a linguistic thing. Like they, they fully back Azerbaijan kind of in all things. Um, but this time around, we have a, you know, different Turkey today than we had in the 1990s, right? Turkey led by, you know, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is much more interested in being this kind of regional power player in a way that, you know, when we go back to thinking, you know, not fully like Ottoman Empire level here necessarily, but Turkey very much has, you know, long seen itself um, kind of historically as, you know, a regional power player. Again, there was an Ottoman Empire. 
Erdogan has very much tried to kind of restore Turkey's role as this, you know, big, important regional player, not only here, but in other areas, also (laughs) Middle East. And so Erdogan very much is kind of trying to exert his his control and his influence in this situation in a way that Turkey hasn't really in recent decades. And so that's one of the first things, um, one of the biggest things that's kind of changed. It's not that it's new that Turkey backs Azerbaijan. It's that Erdogan is very much actively trying to get his hands into this conflict in much the same way we saw Turkey intervene in, you know, Syria and Libya and elsewhere, right? It's a much more kind of robust, regional, kind of active Turkey that we see now. And so, like you said, they're, you know, according to observers that they've seen, you know, at least a thousand uh, Syrian kind of mercenary fighters essentially um, sent by Turkey to directly to Azerbaijan to fight. Erdogan has come out, you know, hardcore and basically said, like, like we've got your back. We're all in. Um, and so, you know, that's that dynamic. If you have a country like Turkey, right, which, again, U.S. NATO ally, because of that, particularly, you know, strong militarily relative to, you know, Armenia, that gives an incentive to, to not back down, right? Like, yeah, maybe I would back down before, but, like, I have Turkey saying, like, we're going to, you know, we got fighters, we got military, like, we're here to help you. And so that's one of the big dynamics kind of pushing this toward potentially becoming bigger than otherwise would have. You know, it it is very relevant that Turkey is involved on the Azerbaijani side, uh, just, you know, as a matter of pure geography to a degree, right? Like Armenia, well, Nagorno-Karabakh specifically is actually, um, as a geographic region, is surrounded by Azerbaijan. There's like a brief strip of Azerbaijani territory that's occupied by Armenia. Basically, it's it's encircled. So Armenia uh, needs to push in there to begin with. The, the other reason that there's a, a significant Turkey-Armenia border, if you think about it, Turkey is to the west of Armenia, which is to the, me- the west of Azerbaijan, right? And Turkey can threaten Armenia credibly with invasion simply by putting a bunch of troops on the border. Now, it hasn't done a significant threat of invasion of Armenia proper yet, but the point is that if Turkey wants to threaten the Armenians, it it would force them to redeploy troops to the opposite side of their country to potentially defend their border from an invasion, which means that they would have fewer resources to devote to the fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh, which would give Azerbaijan a significant leg up in the conflict, even independent of direct Turkish-Syrian fighter involvement in uh, the on-the-ground fighting there. Yeah, just to clarify, uh, for people like uh, myself who have a hard time sometimes visualizing maps and things without actually, like, you know, looking, looking at, at one. Them, yeah. Um, just to kind of clarify, so just very simply, Armenia is kind of sandwiched in the middle between Turkey on one side and Azerbaijan on the other, and those two guys are allied. So that's rough for Armenia. So let me bring in another actor to this fun little uh, mix, which is Russia. Oh, oh, that that tiny country? That, that small little place. So as we mentioned earlier, Armenia and Azerbaijan are, are both former Soviet republics. So therefore, Russia has a deep historical ties to these governments, and even and it is an ally actually of Armenia. Technically, uh, like legally, there's what's called the CSTO. It's almost some people call it the Russian NATO. In effect, if Armenia is attacked, Russia must therefore come to its defense. Uh, however, Russia also has really good ties with Azerbaijan, and and through arms sales and a whole bunch of other things. But what that usually does is having those relationships. Is whenever there's a flare up, Russia comes in and goes, "Hey guys, calm down." chill out, 
you can blame it on us, say Russia is forcing you to chill out and then you can back away. It gives a, a bit of, it opens the political space. Uh, in this case, Russia's not really stepping in um, for a couple of reasons. One, Azerbaijan smartly is not attacking Armenia proper, right? So as not to trigger that um, self, you know, mutual defense thing. It is attacking Nagorno-Karabakh. It is bombing Stepanakert, the capital, for example, uh, 50,000 people constantly. And, and But that is not, again, in Armenia proper. That is in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, the other is its attention is elsewhere, right? It's working in Syria. It's working in Libya. It's um, all over the place. It's trying to interfere in American elections. And um, it's also dealing with the coronavirus. And Belarus. And, whole, and Belarus, exactly. And Ukraine. So Russia right now just doesn't, hasn't really... Um, focus too much on this issue, um, even though, and I should, it should be noted, there is a diplomatic process, I'm sure we'll get into it in a moment, but Russia's the co-chair of that along with France and the U.S. Um, that have been working for since 1992 to resolve this, this issue. Um, but that's basically sputtered and died, and so Russia's only influence is to go to the capitals and be like, hey guys, chill out. Well, Turkey saw this vacuum and went, yay, I can fill it, uh, and I can back Azerbaijan and give Azerbaijan the greatest um, excuse yet to kind of go all in because they know they have Turkey's back and Russia's not fully involved. And Turkey uh, wants to do this for, um, just to add to what's been said, is to have more regional power in, in this area, which it's which it has long wanted, um, and also to really kind of put its finger in Russia's eye. <laughs> like, um, I mean, they've been going at it in Syria um, and in Libya and in other places and this, and even though there's a lot made of like, oh, Turkey and Russia are getting closer and whatever. I mean, they are to a certain respect, but at the end of the day, this they still have differing uh, goals, and this is one of them. This is now for control, in a sense, over this uh, this Caucasus region, and so this is why people are getting worried about this turning into like an international squabble, which. Like, if you could imagine Azerbaijan advancing further and Turkey backing Azerbaijan and perhaps getting, like, directly militarily involved, therefore prompting, perhaps, Russia to get involved on Armenia's side, and then you have Turkey, a NATO ally, uh, either directly or by proxy, going against Russia. That's the nightmare scenario, which, uh, honestly, to me, seems unlikely. Basically, on grounds that the Azerbaijanis are not idiots, uh, right? If you don't want Russia to get involved, you don't actually invade Armenia's internationally recognized borders, which is when the CSTO triggers. Uh, but just fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan's international borders does not trigger the Russian defense treaty. So they don't do that, right? Uh, assuming, again, they are not idiots. Uh, they also don't have any interest in conquering Armenia. There's just, there's no push, no domestic pressure on the Azerbaijani government to actually administer such hostile territory uh, that they don't historically claim inside of their borders, right? They want Nagorno-Karabakh. Just to add one thing quickly to that. Also, again, Turkey is intervening, but you may notice they didn't send Turkish soldiers, right? Right? They sent Syrian mercenary fighters. So not even like their own people. They were just like, yeah, we'll send these other guys over there, right? L like little green men. Um, <laughs> so if Turkey wanted to, you know, really go all in, they could. They're very clearly not there yet. However, it should be noted there are allegations that Turkey, that an F-16 Turkish fighter jet shot down an Armenian jet. That's not proven, but it is an allegation. And there is some evidence, although not fully, um, you know, clear of like Turkish warplanes inside of Azerbaijan. So it, there is a there is a belief that Turkey can, may get more involved. But what the government is saying is, yes, we provide them with weapons and with training, uh, but we like we're not going beyond that. However, they are signaling that they might, which is of right. course. 
more rhetoric than anything. But yeah, you, you, but everything you said stands, Jen. Yeah, yeah. I think that this is like this is the smart strategy, right? In some ways, if you're the the Azerbaijani leadership, right, this is a perfect time for you to make a play for Nagorno-Karabakh, right? You have domestic pressure to do so by virtue of this opposition protest movement. Um, Alex and I seem to have dis- different assessments of how significant it is, but we'll we'll shunt that to the side for the moment. Certainly, it's a concern if you're an authoritarian leader when there's any kind of uh, anti-government opposition leadership. You get to neutralize them by whipping up some nationalist sentiment. Um, you uh, have a lot of the world, not just Russia, but like the entire planet, distracted by a combination of coronavirus response and, uh, well, other problems like what China is doing and the United States election meltdown, all sorts of things that are dominating the headlines and taking public attention away from what happens in the Caucasus, uh, which allows you uh, to get away with more than you might otherwise be able to without the same level of international opprobrium and attention. And you also have Russia distracted and a more interventionist Turkey. So, and you have probable, I would say, again, based on, on people I've talked to, it's not certain, but it seems to me that they have a clear military advantage in the conflict right now. And so all of those those stars align to say if, that it's, it's extremely rational in the means-ends sense used when we're talking about world leaders a lot of the time for the Azerbaijani government to just seize Nagorno-Karabakh, however difficult it is, and try to end the conflict there by declaring victory, uh, which would be pretty bad for the Armenians living in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, it is, but it is the, the the sort of particular geopolitical and domestic political junction that allows the the Azerbaijani government to do what they've been wanting to do for a while. Yeah, and not to make this about the United States because it's not, but uh, you know there is the fact that you know when we're talking about distracted countries. You know, it's no you know shock to anybody that the you know the U.S. under the Trump administration is not super excited about getting involved in international conflicts. You know, even if it's you know something like this, but you know, it's not like, you know, Trump is going to be like, oh my God, I'm really worried about Nagorno-Karabakh. Like he probably doesn't even know what that is and is not interested in getting involved. And so, you know, when we talk about, you know, Turkey, I kind of want to go back a little bit to that. And, and Alex kind of flicked at this earlier. There's this group called the Minsk Group that is led by the United States, France, and Russia. Um, and, you know, they're the kind of three countries that have taken the lead essentially in in the d- diplomatic kind of negotiations and talks for you know for years and years on this um and you know turkey is part of this but they're not the ones at the forefront and so when you look at other places that turkey has tried to intervene right or has intervened libya and syria uh, various other places, right? When you get involved and you stick your fingers in there, well, all of a sudden, when it comes time to have diplomatic talks, like you get a seat at the table. And Turkey is really into that because, again, you know, going back to that idea of like they want to be a power player, you know, especially if the U.S. is less interested in getting involved here, if Russia's distracted, right? Then Turkey just gets a, a nice, you know, front seat at the table and gets to, you know, ideally in, in Erdogan's mind, I assume, help rewrite the uh, the kind of order in the region, you know, when it comes time to to negotiate, if it goes to negotiations, right? That's assuming it doesn't go into full-scale war and, you know, one side takes over the other side. But, you know, that's a really important thing, right? Again, Turkey really wants to be kind of involved here. Um, France has actually stepped up a little bit more uh, recently and, you know, kind of called for, you know, 
calm and is trying to kind of get a little bit more involved and try to calm things down here. Um, but, you know, I guess it kind of remains to be seen whether, you know, Turkey is going to continue. To, it looks like Turkey is going to continue to play this instigating role rather than an actual, like, useful diplomatic uh, kind of calming presence. I don't want to pass over how callous this is. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, this is Turkey putting its own interests ahead of, like, the lives of Azerbaijanis and Armenians. Like, they, they are purposely stoking a conflict that is easily stoked to have a greater say in the Caucasus. Um, they are taking advantage of a vulnerable situation because Erdogan wants a seat at a possible di diplomatic negotiation down the line. So when you read about missiles dropping into Stepanakert, the capital, um, from Azerbaijan, where a bunch of civilians are, when you read that Nagorno-Karabakh forces are... Uh, who do, do not deny shooting at Azerbaijani cities. They say that it's military positions, but there is video evidence of like malls being destroyed. Um, and then when you read that half the population of Nagorno-Karabakh has been uh, displaced because of the violence, right? I mean, this is, yes, it is part of this conflict. Yes, both sides are responsible, but we may not have gotten to this point if Turkey hadn't basically said, we're in, we want this to be as bad. This is This is a really a dangerous like they are fanning the flames of war on purpose for goals that for Erdogan that basically Erdogan just wants a little bit more respect for himself I think we're gonna leave it there because that's a really important note I think to to sort of underscore the human stakes of all of this uh, I want to thank our producer Jackson Bierfeld for his really hard work and I want to encourage all of you to rate subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts thanks a lot we will be seeing you all next week bye